Hello and welcome to ZeroNet50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and Joel Stronberg is here too. Hello, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, so I want to jump right in today by looking backwards. I want to look at September a little bit. And of course, the global climate strike took place. And in a really interesting moment, we got to see Greta Thunberg and Trump in the same room, which was <laughs> beyond interesting. <laughs> Oh, it's certainly made for a great photo op, I'll have to, I'll have to say. Uh, absolutely. Um, and we are unquestionably having a learning moment about where the youth of the world stands and what they want. Um, at one point during the, the climate strike, I was at home watching social media just to see, you know, what all was going on. And I saw a picture of the strike as it was unfolding in Sydney, Australia. Um, and basically just showed the city with a sea of people. But it made me hopeful, and also that hope was tempered by what it, what we've been seeing in our reporting here at, um, in our podcasts. Um, the grassroots nature of the strike is obviously inspiring. We spoke briefly in our last Washington update about the behavior of Australia's leadership at the Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu in August, and I'm struck by the division between the will of our young people and the strains of power that keep that will in check. It's obviously something we've seen through history. Um, it's alarming because change in structures like that take time, and we're in this interesting situation where that's time the climate just doesn't have. Uh, let me just recap from the last podcast uh, episode where we were talking about this. The Pacific Islands Forum held its 50th annual event in August, and the forum represents 18 island nations, including Australia and New Zealand as the big ones, uh, plus many smaller nations, uh, island nations. And those um, small nations are feeling the effects of climate change right now. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has named small islands such as forum member Marshall Islands as being at a, um, what they say is a dispro disproportionately higher rate of adverse consequences of global warming. And the residents of the Marshall Islands already face the reality that they need to either move away from the region now or immediately invest in resilience measures to shore up the region from the rise in ocean levels that is occurring from glacial melt. And that's a, that's a stark existence to have to be facing right now. Um, and as we noted uh, in that podcast, small island nations of the forum put forward a declaration on climate change at the event that they hoped all the forum members would get behind. But it was too stringent for Australia because it called for a commitment to phase out coal use. And, and Australia's economy is deep seated in coal. So there was no way they were going to get behind that. And that's the dynamic we face the big versus the small as we watched the world's young people and their supporters stage the global climate strike. Uh, it's an inspiring movement, the effects of which I hope uh, continue to reverberate beyond September and, and moving forward. So I wanted to bring one youth-led movement into focus that comes from the Pacific Islands region. And the movement has a grassroots approach with an end goal of having a global and international effect, but they've specifically started out small and they want to build momentum, which they've done very quickly. Uh, the student group sprang up earlier this year 
and they're calling themselves Pacific Islands Students Fighting Climate Change. Bit of a mouthful, but you know, we'll give it to them. Uh, but the group is taking an existing idea and putting a, a new spin on it. They want the International Court of Justice to issue an advisory opinion on climate change. That's an existing idea. Uh, it's been presented before unsuccessfully in that the court chose not to take up the issue as proposed. The students now want the advisory opinion to consider human rights and climate change together. And, and the question is, what good would it do to layer human rights on climate change issues in a legal sense? And the students put in their proposal an excerpt that I think is pretty helpful. And it reads, a core role of International Court of Justice advisory opinions is developing and clarifying international law. The International Court of Justice is the only global judicial body that can hear evidence of law and fact on the great range of critically important legal issues that are impacted by climate change and ultimately provide an opinion integrating in consideration of them all. This would in turn enhance the effectiveness of the international legal system tackling climate change, for example, bolstering the authority of human rights bodies to address climate change under their respective mandates. So that's the package of, you know, what's behind their entire movement. Um, the human rights issue is critical to what they're looking at. The advisory opinion would not be a silver bullet, bullet though. And the students argue that the opinion would provide moral authority for action at basically at high levels. And it's important to recognize that the International Court of Justice is easily ignored by those who feel the court is biased in some way. The current US administration provided the perfect example of that uh, last year when then US National Security Advisor John Bolton called the court politicized and ineffective and said the U.S. would review all international agreements that might expose the U.S. to the ICJ's binding decisions. So, you know, that's a, a big slap in the face. It's like, you know what? We, we think we're going to just question everything you do. Uh, but that's kind of what we expect from the Trump administration. Um, an advisory opinion <clears throat> doesn't hold the weight of binding court decisions. So you can see how easily the Trump administration could dismiss anything the court says about climate change in an advisory capacity, and we would expect them to do that wholeheartedly. Any benefit to the advisory opinion would be uh, to put the climate science in a legal forum, which is something you've talked about quite a bit, Joel as the issue of climate change is moving from the political realm to the justice system, system more and more. And the student group traveled to New York for Climate Week to participate in the strike. And in follow-up to the strike, the group said that its delegate, uh, delegates connected in New York with another group called I Am Climate Justice, which also is seeking an advisory opinion from the ICJ in a different way, but you know they have now connected together to see if they can um, you know, bolster their grassroots efforts. Um, a recent update from the student-led group says that it caused, uh, its causes garnered a lot of um, support from international law academics, notably Columbia, Yale, Cam Cambridge, Harvard, but the group has published a list of 44 academics with a specialty in law who support seeking an advisory opinion on climate change. 
And, you know, it's an interesting list of people to peruse and see who's behind this idea. You know, something that technically wouldn't be able to sway the U.S. to to technically do anything, but they still think it's worth doing. And wouldn't it be fantastic if we could bring them all together for a summit and ask them why? But, you know, that's that's ultimately where I'm really interested in what Joel Stronberg thinks about an advisory opinion Ooh. of this nature. <laughs> you may regret your uh, curiosity. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, you're right, Jennifer. I mean, this brings up a, a really interesting um, dynamic or wrinkle, if you will, uh, in, in, in the fight for uh, governments actually responding to the, the climate crisis. Uh, in kind. I mean, it's not as if some countries aren't doing things. Uh, the question is, are you doing enough? Are they doing enough? And are they do, doing it quickly enough? Um, and this is a very time-constrained issue. We're certainly seeing the consequences that uh, scientists have been predicting for decades um, in our daily news, in, in, in hurricanes, in droughts, um, in, in lost uh, species. And so, on top of all of the difficulties that we've had in the past, we're, we're looking for some way to kind of speed up the entire process. Um, we are making some progress. I mean, we did speak about Australia, for example, in the last uh, podcast. Uh, and as it turns out, just about a week ago, the um, high court in Australia actually prevented the export of coal uh, to two nations because they weren't signed on to the Paris Peace Accord. Um, now, well, one of the things that we see in that is that um, the politicians, the, the, the politicians of every country, the, you know, the legislative and executive branches, um, don't always agree with the legal branches. And um, what's been happening in the United States, and it's a trend that's been repeated um, many times over, I think, in, uh, well, many times being a relative kind of term, but many times mm-hmm. in, in the last several years that um, Plaintiffs, uh, people that want to see change, uh, whether they're organizations or individuals or organizations in individual names, are seeking out uh, the courts to be able to kind of define uh, a habitable environment as, in fact, a constitutional right. Um, now, the courts, as we've talked about before, are a, a mixed bag. I mean, they, they, there are a number of cases in the United States and elsewhere um, where the judges say, yes, we understand that climate change is real, that the science is real, that it's all evidence-based, um, that there are harms being uh, felt because of, of a lack of response by governments. But in reality, the courts can only do so much. Um, and so most of the decisions so far have been um, very narrow, very, very narrow, as a matter of fact. And um, part of the movement of, of plaintiffs with domestic courts is to go into the international, into the international realm. Um, Palau, for example, actually did try to uh, get the International Court of Justice uh, to issue an advisory opinion, I think it was in 2012, and as you mentioned, um, they wouldn't do it. And in part, they wouldn't do it because even though it's called the International Court of Justice, it really doesn't doesn't deal with human rights um, the way that that it might sound in the popular press, for example, so that I mean, they, they define their role more narrowly. Now, whether or not the, uh, this new petition will have a, a, a different outcome is, is something that we'll have to wait to see. What did happen also at the UN, uh, during the UN summit, was that uh, 
Thunberg and 15 other uh, young plaintiffs actually filed a petition uh, to the UN's Committee on the Rights of the Child. Now, this is the first time that, that this uh, avenue has been pursued. The, uh, the lineup on this is that in 1989, the United Nations um, Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, was ratified. And one might say it was ratified by every nation of the world except for the United States. Um, and just to be transparent on this, the reason the United States didn't sign on to, to the convention is because it on paper is the only nation that still um, can theoretically uh, incarcerate a child uh, under a life sentence. And, mm. I mean, this, this would be um, something that actually has never happened because I mean, we have a division in our courts between the juveniles and, and adult courts. But the fact of the matter is that that remains on the U.S. books, and so it actually made them ineligible for the convention. Mm. Um, China is on it, and I, I mean, I can't speak for China, but I would imagine that they probably violate um, their rule of not incarcerating children uh, more than once a year. Um, mm -hmm. just, um, but, but anyway, so this is brought under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it has been ratified by uh, 196 nations. Within that structure, there are 45 nations that agreed to an additional protocol that allows children to petition the United Nations directly about treaty violations. Um, and within that group of 45 nations, uh, Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey have been named in the, uh, in the complaint by the children uh, for two reasons. One is because that they are a source, those five nations are a major source of, of pollution. Um, and number two, because they've, they have um, indicated that they would in fact respond to what the Committee on the Rights of the Child um, would uh, decide on, on certain cases. Now again, this, this, this has never been brought before them, so, so there's no record that they would actually respond in this particular, in this particular case. Um, the, the petition has been filed, and then what happens procedurally is that there'll be eight, a panel of 18 um, judges or representatives, committee members, however you want to term them, uh, to actually consider what it is that the children's petition has said, um, and then decide whether or not they have jurisdictions or the inclination to do anything about it. Um, now, what the children are asking for First and foremost is what is, is what everybody's asking for to have this to have the habitability of an environment of, of, the, of their environments um, to be declared a right uh, a, a right of a human right uh, one that's basic that's inalienable mm -hmm. and I know this is somewhat this is somewhat complicated and I'm actually doing a piece on this um, in response to something that you and I had spoken about and in mm -hmm. that piece I'm describing this as a the people should be thinking about this as Russian nesting dolls. They're, they're kind of layers within layers within layers. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the children in this case, um, the, the 16 plaintiffs, uh, 16 petitioners in the United Nations case um, are saying, well, we want you to declare um, human, we want you to declare climate change a crisis of the children, a, a children's crisis. Um, and one of the reasons they're doing that is not because it's not a crisis for the rest of us, but because the, the, the convention itself um, and a lot of the other United Nations uh, 
treaties and petitions or, or conventions for that matter, um, isolate on children as being eligible for special rights um, because they're young, because they've got a future ahead of them for all the, for all the good reasons they do this. That, that, and that, um, other, that most nations laws don't actually um, make that kind of a distinction. So, so they want this declared as a, as a crisis of, uh, of a climate crisis for the children, for the children. And then they want the panel to recommend to the respondent nations, the five uh, nations that are mentioned as, as the respondents in the case, Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey, to, um, they want to recommend to these nations what it is that they should be doing. Now, um, in some fairness, these, some of these nations are doing quite a lot. Uh, France and Germany, for example, are, um, have been leading the charge uh, insofar as uh, developing nations are concerned. I mean, the, the last G20 meeting, um, they try to get Trump to kind of join in the fold and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, the proposition of, of, of the, the uh, petition uh, to the United Nations is that they're not doing it fast enough. Again, we get this timing element right. in all of this. And so um, notwithstanding the fact that nations are working on it, they need to work on it more. And mm -hmm. within the, the petition, they identify the 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. The petition also outlines um, the what is occurring in the 12 nations um, that are represented by the 15, uh, the 16 petitioners in this case. Um, I should also say that uh, on the 30th of September, the Republic of the Marshall Islands actually has, has formally declared a national climate crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, what they've done basically is to put this at the top of their list of things that the government has to um, contend with. And as you also mentioned, I mean, most island nations are actually quite poor, um, yeah. obviously with the exception of Australia and, and China. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that they, I mean, they are somewhat limited in what, what they can do internally. Now, the, the, the crisis, the National Crisis Declaration in the Marshall Islands um, had has indicated that uh, the the IPCC, the, um, the scientific body of, that does the climate change reports for the UN, um, has indicated that if, if nothing substantially different occurs, that by 2050, um, the Marshall Islands will be uninhabitable. Um, and which actually is not the worst situation in the world. Um, a far worse situation is Palau, um, which is, I mean, the island is 6.5 feet above sea level, um, and the seas are threatening them a lot more. I mean, a lot more. Again, it's a relative thing. I mean, whether right. whether you're uninhabitable by 2030 or 2050, it's a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, but this is something that keeps occurring, and not, and the nations don't. I mean, the developed nations don't seem to be doing a lot about it. I mean, if you the Marshall Islands um, is actually has status with the United States, um, in part because uh, there's, an air, there's an airstrip on, on the Marshall Islands that the U.S. uses um, for military security purposes, and this dates back to, the, to World War II. Um, a lot of the Marshall Islands budget is actually um, supplemented, most of the, the, their, their gross national product um, is supplemented by uh, one or two billion dollars of U.S. assistance. and. Um, they're not getting any help, obviously, from the United States. So they're they're looking again to cast a, a net out like Palau. 
Um, now, the reason they do this, I mean, ultimately what happens is that whether it's the Committee on the Rights of the Child or the International Court of Justice, these opinions are not legally binding, uh, notwithstanding the fact that, that the nations have signed on to, to these uh, conventions and said that we'll do what, you know, what it is that you say. They don't do it, and they don't do it for any number of reasons. And ultimately what it boils down to is that it threatens their sovereign authority, and so they just choose not to do it. Um, now, that's not to say that things shouldn't be done, because what happens is that as we build a foundation of, of opinions from various uh, courts, um, both internationally and domestically, um, then what happens is you start building the case. The, the case of the, of the Pacific Island um, children that you had mentioned, the, their organization and the, the 16 um, that filed with uh, the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child, um, are each of those nations also have within them uh, within them rights or have their own legal system. And so, for example, this is these actions in the international court exactly mirror what's happening in the United States, for example, in the Juliana case, um, where the 21 young plaintiffs um, have been asking federal courts to declare it uh, to declare a habitable environment, uh, a human right, uh, a right of the Constitution. Um, which is different, again, than, say, an inherent human right. And the human rights courts in the international area really approach this from the individual, that, that any individ every individual is born with certain inalienable rights, no matter what. Um, but then what happens is it gets translated into constitutions. So in the United States, for example, inalienable rights are guaranteed or are mentioned by the Declaration of Independence, that language does not occur in the Constitution. Um, but what happens over time is that the courts in the United States, and the same thing would happen in France or Germany, um, will interpret whether or not their constitutions actually can be applied to this. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the right of due process, say, in a criminal case, um, is not mentioned in our Constitution either. The, the Miranda warnings that you always hear about, you, know, you have the right to counsel and, mm -hmm. and you say may be held against you is not mentioned in the constitution that was interpreted as uh, as part of the due process guarantees um, of the constitution so that you get these kinds of things declared that way now there's a hierarchy of rights here um, uh, ultimately theoretically the international right is uh, the inalienable right of every human being is paramount to everything but obviously it's not enforced mm -hmm. um, but then you get into these constitutional rights and in the United States, and again, it works in, in other countries that, that have this kind of model, that a constitutional right is, is, as, is as rock solid a right as you can possibly have. Why? Because it's very difficult to change those rights. You can add to them, certainly. And, and, and notwithstanding the fact that occasionally something that's been decided as a right under the Constitution can be undecided um, sometime by the courts. But it's a very unusual situation. But then you, the next right that you would get would be a, a right by the national legislature, in this case, Congress, um, as part of legislation. And although the right is is solid, it's only solid as long as the legislation is enforced. And because the legislature created the right, they can also uncreate it. And in most cases, the the power of the legislature to to take back a right had been given is going to be um acknowledges as, as constitutional because the legislature is one of the three 
co-equal branches of government. And so what's happening, I think, is that we're trying to get the international courts to recognize the right to be able to feed into um, national courts as far as the enforcement and as far as expanding um, the concept of what a guaranteed right in a nation's constitution is. Hey, it's Jennifer. It looks like we got cut off there, but Joel, you were just uh, talking about how the um, we're trying to get the international courts to recognize the right to be able to feed into national courts uh, in terms of enforcement. So why don't you take it away from there? Thanks, Jennifer. Um, we were talking about the idea that the international courts, um, and in the case of the United Nations, the, uh, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, um, can't really order, enforceably order a country to do something. So what's the value of all of this? Uh, and the value of all of this is the fact that um, climate change is recognized as the crisis that it is. These courts give um, access uh, to plaintiffs that sometimes the national courts don't always get. Um, and it begins to tie into, I mean, international treaties do have standing. Now, whether or not an individual court, in, this, in our case, the United States, um, the Supreme Court will recognize that is, is, another, is another matter. But the fact of the matter is that it can be raised. The information that's brought up in these cases can be raised. The validation of the science can be raised. And ultimately what happens, the, the answer to all of this is not really coming out of the courts. I mean, the courts, as we've discussed before, are important. It's important. It's particularly important if we could get a, 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 the, a the habitable climate declared a right of um, our, our constitutional. Um, but the fact of the matter is the real answers to all of this is legislatures, that, that the courts can only do what they can do. Um, but bringing this information in not only builds the case for the courts, but it builds the case for the courts of public opinion. And this is ultimately what changes things. The fact that this is grassroots based is probably the most important element of any of this. Um, you know, we've seen in this country that uh, environment has been at the top of voters' priority lists quite often, actually, in the last 25 years. It never gets translated to the voting booth. And the way I see the youth movement is that the difference between this year and last year, I mean, less than last year, probably nine months ago, is the fact that the grassroots of not only the United States, but of island nations, of Europe, of even in China, um, people are starting to say, governments, you have to do something about it. That kind of corporate pressure from the, from the, gra from the grassroots up is actually what's going to change all of this. And I mean, the courts ultimately are going to be a companion piece. At the moment, they're the, the, the beachhead, so to speak. Um, of, of the uh, strategies to get nations to change things. But ultimately, it's up to the legislatures. And uh, if we keep poking our, our, the system um, from all different angles, one of, one of these strategies is going to actually take effect. Um, and uh, legally, but probably before legal decisions can get us what we want, the grassroots will stand up and tell their elected bodies to do something about it and do something about it now because our, our present, not just our future, but our present depends upon some kind of action. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, there, speaking of action, you know, everything that we're talking about, there's just so much to follow and watch. So obviously you and I will keep uh, our eyes on all of it and bring it back here. But before we wrap things up, I just want to make one more comment about the global strike um, 
there may be in some people's minds, and I think we've seen it out in the media, a question about why our young people feel we aren't making progress on climate issues. You know, what about the Paris Agreement, they might ask. Um, well, the UNFCCC put out a report for the Climate Action Summit in New York that found that there is a, and they quote, uh, glaring and growing gap between agreed targets to tackle global warming and the actual reality. And among the things that they found um, under our current planned climate policy scenarios, global emissions will not peak by 2020 or even 2030, as you know some people would like to see. And the level of ambition under the Paris Agreement nationally determined contributions needs to be tripled to reach a two degree Celsius limit and a fivefold to reach that one and a half degree Celsius limit. Uh, so within that in mind, uh, I think our young people realize that some action is not enough action and they want to see much, much more done now. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Uh, I hope everyone has an opportunity uh, to take one small action in support of a healthy climate. And thank you, Joel, for your interesting insights today. We look forward uh, to your article on the UN petition that's coming out uh, this week. Yes, it should be out the next day or two. Okay, great. And if listeners have any comments on this week's pod podcast, uh, tweet us uh, at hashtag 0 50 and have a great day.